there's going to be a new normal after this uh, that involves having to do more services outside the hospital and at home because uh, the risk of infection is going to be with us for a while. And also in talking with some healthcare leaders around the country, I've heard from them about, well, you know, the silver lining here is that some of this actually seems to, to work well. That was Dr. Mark McClellan, Director and Professor Duke's Margolis Center, former FDA commissioner and CMS administrator, speaking about changes coming about as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Gary Bisbee, and this is Fireside Chat. The coronavirus outbreak has become the sole focus of the health delivery system in virtually every country. The first stage of the outbreak is containment, then we move to response, and finally recovery. Our interview with Dr. Julie Gerberding three days ago focused primarily on containment. This interview with Dr. McClellan covers containment and the response of the federal government and the private sector. We'll continue to bring you conversations with those leaders on the front lines of this battle. Dr. McClellan has sat at the heart of the federal agencies guiding the government response to the coronavirus pandemic. His views are tested by government service, academic rigor, and practical experience. As the coronavirus epidemic continues to unfold, you'll come back again and again to this conversation. It has relevance for the present and wisdom for the future. Let's welcome Dr. Mark McClellan. Well, we welcome Dr. Mark McClellan back to this microphone, actually. Mark, the last video we did was about a year, year and a half ago, different circumstances. So thank you very much for spending some time with us. Very great to be back with you. Uh, talk about different circumstances. Even the last week or two have been uh, tremendously different, but glad to have an opportunity to talk with your participants about these important topics today. Excellent. And I know you've been spending a lot of time with HHS, so things are happening there probably by the minute, almost literally. Just based on your knowledge, where are we at in the surge in the U.S. now? We're still at an early stage, Gary, in most parts of the country. Um, China had uh, cases that, that that really ramped up. Italy was uh, uh, a few a few weeks and still is in surge capacity, at least when we're talking today. So uh, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, I am pleased to see the steps that have been taken on some pretty extreme uh, social distancing, physical isolation measures, and uh, the progress that we're beginning to make on key aspects of the surge. So hopefully listeners are, are in a position where they can see a way to get through this. We've seen quite a regional difference, New York, California, New Orleans, Seattle, and so on. Do you think that's going to balance out over time or not? Well, this is going to be a regional phenomenon with uh, experience in the coming weeks uh, likely to be significantly different across the country. That's not to say at this point we can predict that any area is going to be immune to a significant increase in the number of cases, but um, definitely the surge is happening faster in places like Seattle, New York, Bay Area uh, than it is in others. Um, there are some worrisome spots, at least as we're sitting here talking about this now, like New Orleans, where there hasn't been a, a huge increase in detected cases yet, but a lot of reasons to suspect it may get worse. Uh, so it will be variable across the country. And 
while I think the focus appropriately is really on how to deal with these next few weeks as effectively as possible, people need to plan for the fact that COVID-19 is going to be with us in some form and for, for quite a while. And so we need to also be thinking ahead now to the extent we can about how we make this a more manageable condition for getting ahead of future outbreaks over the coming year. Can I ask the question about the H1N1 pandemic of 2009? Any lessons there that that we can learn from and apply to the current situation? Each uh, previous epidemic or pandemic teaches us something, even for epidemics like this one, which really is unprecedented in the past century. So for H1N1 or for the, the SARS outbreak previously, when I was FDA commissioner, for uh, some of the others, there, there always are a common set of components. When you don't have anything at first, the so-called non-medical interventions like social isolation, closing schools, and the more intensive steps that, steps that we've taken now are the most important things to do. And the response needs to focus on surge, as we've just been talking about, but also getting out of having to rely just on non-medical approaches. So uh, very common set of responses include focusing on advancing the availability of reliable and quick diagnostics, advancing the availability of therapies, and everybody is working hard towards a vaccine. That's a little ways off. In the meantime, it should be feasible to get treatments that have an impact uh, on the condition and help with prophylaxis as well. Uh, and then surveillance. It's just really important for uh, the fact that um, just like in H1N1, there may be recurrent waves. For the second wave, you want to be much better prepared than you were for the first to keep it much more contained. How's HHS thinking about pandemic plans that our various stakeholders, health systems, health insurance companies, pharma companies have in talking to the CEOs of our health systems, they all have pandemic plans, but you just wonder whether there's enough resources have gone into them to keep them current and, and make them robust. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, there are clearly some shortfalls in our pandemic planning and preparedness, and we're seeing that now in the supply chain problems for things like masks and personal protective equipment and swabs for lab tests. And we're seeing it in the ability to, to track uh, outbreaks reliably around the country, taking steps uh, across all of HHS uh, and other parts of government, um, federal and state and local, to, to fill in those gaps. Uh, but um, we're, we're definitely not there yet. In terms of the responses to coronavirus, you were talking about social distancing, and I can see enthusiasm for two weeks <laughs> or maybe three weeks. But do you think we have the resolve to keep this up for maybe 30 days if that's what's going to be required? You know, I think so. And I think there's a good chance we're going to that we're going to have to measure this intensive set of social distancing steps and all of its impact on people's well-being and uh, and the economy in, a in terms of weeks, not not days. Um, I think that we can see a way to get beyond that in the weeks ahead if we're able to manage this initial surge in cases and if we're able to take some steps in those key areas that I outlined earlier, better, more rapid diagnostics being widely available, progress on treatments that show activity against 
uh, COVID-19 in the uh, in the short term, validating them and, and producing them widely uh, and getting a better surveillance capacity. When those kinds of steps are in place, it becomes feasible to start relaxing these so-called non-medical interventions that are so important and so disruptive uh, right now. So I, I, I do see a, a path forward to manage that uh, beyond the next month or two. But I think this is these kinds of steps are going to be with us for a little while longer. In terms of the national emergency that was declared, the last time an emergency for public health reasons was declared was after H1N1 by President Obama. But how important is the declaration of the national emergency in terms of the economy, health providers, public confidence, and so on, Mark? Uh, it's it's important in all of those dimensions. I mean, if there ever were an occasion for a public health uh, national emergency, global emergency, this is it. And in at the federal level, this does free up more resources and more flexibility in using resources um, to help respond to the epidemic for healthcare providers and other healthcare organizations. I think what they'll notice is that the government can bring to bear more resources faster and enable um, responses that under normal circumstances would uh, be blocked by usual regulations that are there for good reasons, but that you know, the whole cost benefit analysis uh, uh, shifts substantially in circumstances like that. Uh, and it's also, I think, very important for adding focus and momentum to the response. You, you mentioned public confidence. Uh, public needs to know uh, that this is a really serious situation and there are important things that every American needs to do and expect uh, as we work through this um, public health emergency and respond effectively to the pandemic. Uh, it also helps mobilize more support. So public health emergency is kind of a foundation for the president, uh, political leaders getting out there and working together to pass needed legislation, to make further regulatory changes, to um, implement steps to address uh, supply chain problems and everything else that's needed to help out the providers on the front lines and the rest of our healthcare system in responding to this epidemic. In addition to the national emergency, then it looks like Congress has passed, the president signed a trillion dollar relief fund. How will that be broken down, do you suppose, between steps to help the economy and individuals who need it and health care? Any feel for that, Mark? Well, every national emergency um, has with it um, steps to provide resources and support to help with the immediate response, but also to help with the impact on people and on the overall economy. And we're likely to see several rounds of legislation. You mentioned they're getting progressively uh, bigger mm -hmm. uh, to, to deal with the, the threats here. So uh, the current currently passed legislation provides resources for things like uh, COVID-19 testing and treatment, including for people who are uninsured, um, making sure that that cost is not a barrier to uh, people getting care. That's really important that when people are at risk or uh, need treatment for a contagious condition like this, even more important that it is in, uh, in, in access to care and the impact that that has on each individual. But beyond that, um, the funds also include support for economic recovery. And no question, uh, we've had, seen a huge in, uh, economic impact already, um, uh, as most uh, economists are, are uh, stating at this point, we're probably in a recession. 
and giving individuals more resources, providing unemployment, expanded unemployment insurance, providing other kinds of help for, for children and families that are affected, uh, especially lower income and more vulnerable populations. That's very typical for a, a major national emergency, economic or uh, public health. Uh, and uh, very glad to see Congress taking steps in this direction. What I think is, is very important in the steps, especially to support the healthcare system, uh, is to remember that we're not just trying to help deal with the surge of cases now, important as that is, but since COVID-19 is gonna be with us for a while, we need to be taking steps that not only address the surge now, but help us uh, for the next year, two years, as we're continu continuing to deal with this, hopefully in a much more contained way after we get through this first surge. So that means steps like uh, uh, healthcare organizations thinking about not only how they do testing today, but how they do testing investments today in a way that helps set up a surveillance system that can be used for the next three, six, 12, 24 months to rapidly detect, uh, uh, much more rapidly detect cases in the future and respond uh, effectively to them, not necessarily in you know, the, 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 the hospitals that we had pre-COVID-19, but in uh, home-based settings and um, more um, uh, efficient settings of care that can prevent the further spread of the illness and can help us deal with this condition at a, uh, a lower overall economic cost. So hopefully the, all of these emergency resources that are being mobilized now, both for people and especially for healthcare providers, uh, can be used in a way that not only responds to the immediate issue, but helps strengthen the country and help gets us, helps us get uh, on a road to back to stability as quickly as possible. Right. Well, of course, you were a leader at CMS. What do you think they're thinking about in terms of considering waivers, perhaps, for Medicare and Medicaid that could relax certain regulations, but uh, in the interests of the economy and people's health? Yeah, those steps are already there. I think the CMS administrator, Seema Burma, and the team has been very proactive in doing the kinds of things that need to be done in situations like this. So whether it's a, um, a, a pandemic emergency like this one or, or uh, Katrina, a natural disaster, um, CMS has a lot of tools that it can pull out in terms of relaxing requirements on site of service, on state of licensure of healthcare providers. I think more, which they've already done, I think more may be coming on things like uh, using allied health professionals as part of teams that are trying to deal with surges, as well as um, providing services in different kinds of places, uh, maybe hotels or other unoccupied um, public spaces to deliver care to, to, to deal with the, uh, with the surge. Similarly for Medicaid, there have been waivers for um, uh, delivering services in, in, uh, in, in uh, atypical places, uh, more flexibility in sites and how care is provided and been a notable uh, level of support for telemedicine and services provided at a distance. These are really broad uh, waivers now. Um, CMS has been pushing the use of telemedicine, particularly in the so-called alternative payment models, you know, the ACOs and the primary care medical homes and the organizations that are moving away from fee-for-service 
uh, to create a more sustainable business model for services like telemedicine that traditionally haven't been reimbursed under fee-for-service. So this is a really good opportunity for organizations that haven't moved that far away from the traditional you know, bricks-and-mortar sites of delivering care uh, to maybe think about not just, you know, where do I house my uh, patients in the surge um uh, capacity situation, but how do I realign my organization again? Since COVID nineteen is going to be with us for a while, uh, so that I can deliver more services at a distance via telemedicine that can be cheaper and, and better for the patients if done effectively. Uh, how can I uh, up my game on my population health tracking of you know, being able to track what happens uh, after my patients uh, leave the hospital or the healthcare facility, or uh, get better data on all the people in my community, so a better position to um, deal with um, public health uh, crises like these like these that come up in the future, including the potential next wave of a COVID-19 outbreak. As commissioner of the FDA, what is the FDA looking to do now in terms of, of initiatives? Well, the FDA is a critical part of responses to public health emergencies like this one. Um, that, that's always been the case. You know, I mentioned um, uh, being at FDA for SARS, um, also had the chance to work closely with FDA in the post 9-11 setting where we're worried about uh, bioterrorism attacks and in the context of other kinds of outbreaks. And FDA has a really good capacity uh, that it uses for on a day-to-day on a -day basis for um, helping to expedite the development of diagnostics and treatments for unmet medical needs that really shifts into overdrive in cases like this. So uh, you've seen steps for emergency use authorization of a wider range of uh, PCR diagnostic tests uh, that previously hadn't been approved for, for COVID-19, even to the point of giving uh, states uh, and uh, local authorities the ability to do pre-approval for some of the so-called lab-developed uh, uh, PCR tests. You're seeing FDA work now with what I think is a very promising next generation of testing, uh, point-of-care tests being developed for um, COVID-19 detection. It could be even faster and and uh, maybe done uh, more conveniently in, in pop-up sites uh, around a, a community. And you've seen the same thing on the, the development of, of new therapeutics. So uh, not just uh, collaborations with, tight collaborations with manufacturers and other experts around vaccine development, but also around the treatments that can potentially be available in the next month to three months uh, to help in the shorter term with really tamping down the intensity of the epidemic. Um, uh, prophylactic treatments and treatments for severe cases based on things like um, uh, immune globulins from uh, patients who have recovered, monoclonal um, anti-COVID-19 antibodies uh, that are, uh, take advantage of, of new uh, uh, biomedical technologies at places like uh, Regeneron, uh, and many, many um, uh, antivirals or drugs that are suspected of having COVID-19 effects. The challenge that FDA has is that it has to ramp up these activities and then the production and availability of the treatments that really do look like they're going to work 
to a much larger scale and much faster, given how intensive uh, this uh, outbreak has been. And that's where I'm a bit concerned. Um, I've done some work on this with our center at uh, Duke Margolis. We have several papers out uh, on this topic, and this is a subject of a lot of activity uh, at FDA in collaboration with NIAID and other parts of government, as well as industry and the private sector to uh, do a, a much better, faster job, almost a you know, Manhattan Project type approach of accelerating treatments in the, the short term and much better, faster diagnostics that are much more widely available in the short term, uh, as well as uh, getting to a vaccine as quickly as possible. So this, you know, this is this all hasn't happened yet. We're still facing today and dealing with the, uh, the surge uh, shortages of, of drug uh, tests and, and supply problems. FDA has a role in helping with that too. Uh, but FDA also is trying to look ahead to get us to a better position for getting this uh, outbreak under control. Well, you can run for president on that campaign as far as the <laughs> providers are concerned, Mark. So <laughs> we just have a couple minutes left. You've got a hard stop here. Let me ask yeah. a question about, and we do appreciate your time. It's just terrific sure, information. Sure. A question about our stakeholders, health systems, private insurers, pharma companies, and so on. The, the question from the health system side is a major disruption, of course. Virtually all of them yeah. have canceled elective surgeries. There's a variety of costs that they're encountering to uh, treat the coronavirus patients. Yeah. What, what do you see as is, is HHS, CMS? Is there likely to be any reimbursement or any covering of any of these kind of foregone costs? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it is so challenging to be a leader in a health system today dealing with this pandemic. And uh, you do have to focus first and foremost, not on am I going to get reimbursement for, for all of this, but on what do I actually need to do to respond to the epidemic? And and that starts with uh, the safety and well-being of the workforce. Uh, so, you know, paying close attention to uh, how tired and exhausted people are getting, uh, um, all the efforts that we're seeing around the country now to um, uh, up the game on uh, the supply and availability of personal protective equipment, uh, all of those steps are, are, are a lot of work. Uh, I mentioned uh, the, the strategies around redesigning care, not just for the next month and the surge of you know, including increased telemedicine and, and getting care that doesn't need to be in the hospital, out of the hospital, uh, but for the longer term, this is going to be with us. Uh, in some ways for, uh, for, for months to come. And so uh, leaders and healthcare organizations shouldn't just be thinking about how do I get, what do I need to do to get through the next four weeks and get back to, to normal after the surge? There's going to be a new normal after this uh, that involves having to do more services outside the hospital and at home because uh, the risk of infection is going to be with us for a while. And also in talking with some healthcare leaders around the country, I've heard from them about, well, you know, the silver lining here is that some of this actually seems to to work well. You know, maybe my um, uh, you know post uh, cancer, uh, long term survivor patients don't really need to to come into my oncology uh, centers uh, offices. Maybe they can be managed virtually and uh, and locally. And now that my staff is getting up to speed on doing telemedicine, well, maybe there's a lot that we could continue doing uh, in that way. And again, more emphasis on managing whole populations. So being able to not just, you know, uh, do test COVID testing on patients who come in and say that they may be at risk, but being able to 
look in your community, identify who is at risk and, and reach out to them and get them into uh, appropriately triage management, hopefully with telemedicine based care at home if they don't have a if they turn out to be positive and don't have a very severe case. So these are permanent uh, changes that I think are coming in our healthcare system. And while we absolutely have to focus on the short term uh, surge response, first and foremost, uh, look ahead to what's uh, what's going to be changing after that. We're going to look forward to following up with you on the new normal and your thinking about that. One final question, if I could, you're on several boards of directors. What questions ought boards of directors be asking uh, management regarding the coronavirus pandemic? I think the most important questions relate to the topics we just covered. You know, is their workforce doing okay? Are they thinking strategically and effectively and getting the support and collaboration they need for both the immediate surge response and for what's going to follow as we try to get back out of these very intense uh, isolation measures and into you know what will be the new normal. Uh, beyond that, um, I think um, boards uh, have to think about the the broader uh, community and, and economic environment. And uh, this is going to be a hard hit to the economy. One, I hope we can recover from uh, pretty quickly in terms of um, uh, getting the current surge under control and then having those additional steps that I described in place. Better rapid diagnosis diagnostics, better treatments, and, and, and a really good local surveillance capacity so you can say with confidence to the, the people in your region that, hey, we can relax these steps and, and we'll be able to, you know, it's not saying that we're, we're done with COVID-19, but we can you know, manage it much more effectively and start getting back to going about uh, our lives. So paying attention to all those issues is is not easy right now, but, uh, but very important for boards as well. Mark, appreciate your time. Absolutely terrific interview. And uh, please take care of yourself. I know, I know you're moving uh, great, great to talk to you. And, and my thanks to, to all of their, your listeners. Uh, they're making a huge difference at a really critical time in public health for our country. Thanks so much, Mark. This episode of Fireside Chat is produced by Stratfire. Please subscribe to Fireside Chat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Be sure to rate and review Fireside Chat so we can continue to explore key issues with innovative and dynamic healthcare leaders. In addition to subscribing and rating, we have found that podcasts are known through word of mouth. We appreciate your spreading the word to friends or those who might be interested. Fireside Chat is brought to you from our nation's capital in Washington, D.C., where we explore the intersection of healthcare politics, financing, and delivery. For additional perspectives on health policy and leadership, read my weekly blog, Bisbee's Brief. For questions and suggestions about Fireside Chat, contact me through our website, firesidechatpodcast.com, or gary at hmacademy.com. Thanks for listening.